1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to new books in LGBTQ studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee. I'm a PhD candidate in gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Western University. And I'll be in conversation today with Dr. Anthony Christian Ocampo on their new book, Brown and Gay in LA The Lives of Immigrant Sons. Dr. Ocampo is professor of sociology at California State Polytechnic University, Pomona. He is also the author of The, uh, the Latinos of Asia How Filipino Americans Break the Rules of Race. Today, we'll be talking about Brown and Gay in LA, The Lives of Immigrant Sons, published by New York University Press this year. Um, welcome to the New Books Network, Anthony.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited.
1: Thanks. Um, could you begin by telling us a little bit about your intellectual journey and how it has shaped um, this book?
0: Yeah, I, I think that the the seeds of this book started in, probably in my early 20s. I, I didn't start writing the book till the early 2010s, but... Uh, in my early twenties, was, it was a really uh, it was a time of transition for me. I was um, starting my PhD at UCLA, and as you know, as someone that's getting a PhD, the job is to become an expert on some topic. So for me, my topic was race and immigration, specifically, and what that what that means is that I was reading. Articles and books, and taking classes, and going to lectures, um, seminars that that revolved around the topic of of race, the topic of immigration. But around the same time, there was something else happening. It was the time when I was starting to come into my own sexuality as a gay man. And um, luckily for me, UCLA is very, very close to West Hollywood, California. <laughs> it's like literally on the same street. But um, West Hollywood, if folks don't know, is, is this neighborhood um, that has a really vibrant uh, queer nightlife, has queer uh, queer shops and restaurants and and um, bars and clubs, um, health resources, of course, too. But um, when I wasn't working on my PhD stuff, I found myself hanging out in gay spaces like West Hollywood. And I mentioned that because... As someone who's gay, as someone that's Filipino, uh, I happened to find myself in social circles that were predominantly gay and Asian American or gay and Latino. And what I really started to notice is that here I was at UCLA reading all these stories about race and immigration, and never once were the stories of gay Latinos or gay Filipinos uh, brought into the mix in 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 my discussions within... Um, like my sociology classes, for example. Of course, it is the case that there's that this has already started to be written about um, in like fields like English or, or um, cultural studies or ethnic studies, but in sociology specifically, um, it was pretty slim pickings. So I think that's what got me interested. I wanted to really see how um, queerness really shaped the experience of children of immigrants, um, shaped the experience of growing up in an immigrant family and community.
1: Right. Um, you interview second generation racialized gay men with origins in um, Asia and Latin America, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that choice and, and how it helped you write about uh, race, sexuality, and uh,
0: immigration. For sure. I I think one of the big reasons I wanted to write about two different groups. And in in my case, I wrote about Filipino American gay men and Mexican American gay men, as well as um, a few other like Latinx ethnicities like Salvadoran or um, um, Colombian, for example. And I wanted to interview folks from different ethnic categories, because I thought this is a chance to see what's similar in terms of the experiences of um, gay men that are of different ethnic groups. Cause I do think that to be gay, um, it, it, it ends up being the case that you start to build community with other gay folks. But I also wanted to do a comparison because it would be really enlightening to see how race can then shape differences in, in the queer coming a coming of age experience or race can affect how, um, queer people like these queer sons of immigrants are able to integrate into, um, the LGBTQ scene, for example, and that's exactly what happened. I, I realized that there, of course, there were similarities in that you know both Filipino and, and and Latino men felt like this deep sense of family obligation, this deep sense of like trying to make sure that um, you know they, they're good representatives of their immigrant parents and community, um, and they often felt that like oh I'm gay that kind of like tarnishes the image of, of my family or my parents or or, or my ethnic group, right? Um, in other words, they saw their ethnicity and their sexuality as incompatible with each other. Um, that was very similar experience between the two groups. But then, of course, as you know, um, Filipinos who are Asian American and, and Latinos, they have very different experiences in school, right? Um, as you know, there's this thing called the model minority stereotype. Uh, where folks that are perceived as Asian are assumed to be like, smart and you know, they do good in school, whereas um, Latino boys uh, you know, can be typecast in, in more negative ways in the context of schools. So because they were grappling with different stereotypes, for example, I think that affects some of the coping strategies that um, these gay men were able to engage in in, in middle school and high school.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think surviving school, one of the chapters in the book, is is very interesting, but we'll come to it later. Um, you conducted nearly sixty interviews for this book. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, the research process and and the complexities involved and how it has um, shaped this book?
0: Yeah, I was I I kind of love this question a lot because. Um, I, I was really inspired by a couple um, sociologists that I had the privilege to come into contact with. There's a, there was a professor at my school, Mignon Moore, who wrote about Black lesbian experiences in New York, New York City. And then uh, I read I read a book by um, his sociologist who unfortunately passed away, Leonel Cantu, about the experience of like gay gay Latinos in LA. And in both books, they talk about how for a lot of sexuality researchers who for the most part are 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 white it's not as easy for them to get access to community queer communities of color for a variety of reasons but having spent you know (laughs) a decade in the gay scene before i even you know thought about writing a book Let's just say I was really excited by the access that I had to this this community. I knew that if I was able to study this, if I was able to do a, a research project on this, it would um, I would have the chance to have really quality um, interviews, quality data, um, and and really get at the nuances of what it meant to live at the intersections of of, of race and sexuality. So. Um, What ended up happening was I I went to gay bars, gay, 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 um, gay clubs. I was regular, a regular at a lot of these places. I also went to pride events. I would go to, um, I, I recruited some, some interviewees, uh, from local college student organizations and pretty much I would just ask these, these folks, Hey, you know, I'm working on this book about what it's like to be gay in an immigrant family. Uh, do you want to share your story? And to my well, it's not really a surprise, but what was really a wonderful thing was that a lot of these young men were like, absolutely. I rarely got someone that was like, no, I don't wanna do it. And I think it's because the the art the, interview would be one of the first times or only times they'd be able to talk openly about what it meant to be both gay and Mexican or both gay and, um, and, and Filipino American. I think it's better nowadays, but back then, when I was doing this project in the early to mid 2010s, it was still the case that, you know, it, you had to compartmentalize those identities, it felt like.
1: Right. I, I found it interesting that um, you write about there being stereotypes about racialized immigrants coming from a a quote-unquote backward country, which is read as and often declared as homophobic. Um, And many of your interviewees uh, spoke out against uh, this stereotype. Could you talk a little bit about their perception um, of the backward progressive binary and how it informs their experiences of moving through the world?
0: Right. Uh, I think that uh, I remember I read this, this some of the work of the sociologist Katie Connell, and in this in some of her work she talks about how um, white gay folks sometimes um, typecast uh, communities of color as inherently more homophobic or like more conservative than say like white circles. And in some ways, that's <laughs> like showing that they're more uh, woke when it comes to LGBTQ issues is another form of like white supremacy. Like, oh, we're more progressive, we're more enlightened than these like backwards um, countries or, or communities. And so uh, I appreciated the fact that I was able to get stories from, um, hear stories from these young men where it wasn't that simple, right? There were some Filipino American men that I, that I interviewed that said, you know, I have a, I have an auntie, like my, my, my father's favorite sister, the one who helped us get to the United States. She's, she's a lesbian. She has a partner. And, uh, you know, it's not like she was shunned from the family. Um, she was, she was part of the family. And so that was, that's to say like things are not as simple as like philippines mexico homophobic america land of the free right it's that's not the case at all and in in the same way in this in the same case was there were some latino respondents as well that spoke about how they had um family members uh who were who were also gay and those family members ended up being role models that exposed them to gay culture, um, gay neighborhoods, and that was really valuable for them. So um, I think that was that was nice to hear. And I'm glad I was able to include those stories because I think there's still a ton of folks out there, including some of the young men that I interviewed that truly believe that like Latino culture or Filipino culture is somehow like more conservative when it comes to gay issues than, say, mainstream American culture.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, You also make um, very interesting observations about masculinity and and morality and sexuality. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the interconnections between masculinity, immigration, race, and sexuality, and how it informs the lived experiences of racialized women uh, you interview for your book.
0: Yeah, I think masculinity, whether we like it or not, it it shapes all our lives, um, regardless of what you're gender is. (laughs) Uh, Masculinity as a concept is this notion that you know, um, you're dominant, you have to be strong, you can't be uh, overly emotional, except if you're angry, right? You can't like cry. Uh, You have to dress a certain way, walk a certain way, uh, you have to like certain types of activities and sports. Um, And so what I what I learned from hearing these stories, and in fact, it's very much informed by my own growing my own experience growing up was that if you violated the rules of masculinity, then it was trouble for you. You'd get yelled at, you get punished, you may get um, like spanked, you get reprimanded, you'd be shamed. Uh, there were there were so many stories of, of young men that talked about doing like moving their hand in a certain way or or laughing a certain way and then getting clocked for being acting gay or they were um watching television shows like queer as folk on showtime and then um their their fathers like got really angry at them for for even watching the just like gay 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 something gay that was on television um they would say things like shut that shut that off like that's don't watch that that's bad that's bad that's immoral and so that's that was that was a common experience um and I, you know i'd be remiss to say that like i know what that's like as well i mean i was a kid that like loved figure skating and gymnastics i still do (laughs) but growing up that was always weaponized against me or that was always i was always made to feel shameful for being into um Sports that are perceived to be associated with homosexuality, uh, and that that can get really painful it, when you're in a family, when you're in a community, when you're in a school. Those are places where you're supposed to feel a sense of protection. Parents are supposed to protect you. Teachers are supposed to protect you. But when you don't adhere to the rules of masculinity, all of a sudden it creates a rift between you and the people that are supposed to protect you. And I think that that, that was a very, um, across the board, a very traumatizing experience for for the, the young men that I spoke to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And building off of that, um, you also write how uh, schools attempt to discipline boys into heterosexuality and, and regulate their behavior to make them conform to cisgender norms. Um, would you like to walk us through what surviving school meant for your interviewees, um, for our audience?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that in school, there's no explicit messages about um Homosexuality. I, I mean, for the most part, uh, everyone that I interviewed, it was very rare that someone said that like a teacher brought up gay anything, gay history, gay topics, gay issues. That was not very common <laughs> at all, and and so that's not to say that these young men didn't learn about what it meant to be queer or gay, it just wasn't in the classroom. So if you look at the typical experience of a, of a junior high kid here in the US, um, when they're in junior high, that's the period of your life where you start to talk about, oh, who do you have a crush on or who do you like, right? Um, when you get to high school, it's it's all about like, who are you gonna take to the school dance? Um, who's, who's gonna be your girlfriend if you're, or who's gonna be your boyfriend, whatever. Um, those were really difficult moments for the young men that already were starting to question their sexuality because that's when they felt like, oh crap, oh no, like there's something wrong, I can feel it. When they asked me like, who do I have a crush on or who would I think is hot or, or who do I want to like, like get with, um, you know, in terms of like romantically, uh, it was almost as if they had to perform heterosexuality. They knew instinctually, like, you had to say someone's, you had to say a girl's name. Otherwise, you know, you're going to get punished for it or you're going to be called um, a faggot for it, right? And so that was, um, that's all to say, like, schools uh, and particularly peers play a big role in socializing these men on what it means to be a man, a very narrow definition of what it means to be man. And what was really extra troubling was that whenever... Homophobic comments were made in these schools. One would think that like the teachers would step in and say like, "Don't don't say that. That's rude or that's wrong." But sometimes it would be the case that the teacher would laugh, or they wouldn't. They would pretend that the comment didn't happen. They would do. There would be no reprimanding of of the person that that hurled a homophobic slur um, to someone else in their presence. And and all of those things send the message to these these questioning and queer men that, hey. No one's going to protect you and so what are they going to do like what are these young men to do and so a lot of the young men i interviewed um both filipino and latino talked about they they invested in their school lives because school felt like it could be their escape plan uh they could be in classes where they won't get bullied if they were like ap and honors classes they could um eventually graduate and go to college and move away so they can uh, you know not be um reprimanded for who they are by their friends they could they could start fresh um uh, one day if their parents reject them if they go to school and get a college degree and get a good job then they could be in- economically independent and and th- this is what i mean about the way that like these young men weren't just um trying to survive school on a daily basis they also saw school as a survival strategy for them uh both short in the short term and the long term
1: right yeah um, you also write about racialized gay men finding community in queer spaces both in person and online and it becomes an important uh, part of their becoming um, could you tell us a little more about these community spaces and how queer of color kinship
0: in particular emerges um, in these spaces yeah absolutely it, it's interesting because I, I, I a lot in my a lot of, in a lot of my interviews when I asked them what was your Elementary school, like life, like what was your high school life like? Um, so many of them said that, like, they were the only gay man or the only gay person. Uh, they weren't out, um, some weren't out, some were out, but they were pretty much the only one. And what that meant is that they didn't have a lot of, um, friends with whom they could talk explicitly about what it meant to have a a same sex crush or, you know, talk about like sex or 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 talk about things associated with queer culture, uh, like TV shows like Queer as Folk or Will and Grace, for example, right. Uh, And that meant though that high school can be very much an isolating place, even if you had friends if they didn't know this major aspect of your identity, it could still be an isolating place. And so, when these young men were of age, were able to drive, able to go to college, able to, they were twenty-one and able to go to bars and clubs. A lot of them found refuge in in queer spaces that also happened to be predominantly folks of color. In Los Angeles, there's no shortage of of clubs that are predominantly Asian or predominantly Latinx. Um, there was. There was a lot. There wasn't just one. So for, for Mexican-Americans, you had like clubs like, at the time, circus, disco, and arena in Hollywood. You had Latin nights in West Hollywood. You had uh, uh, executive suites in Long Beach. You had Cobra in the San Fernando Valley. So gay Latino spaces were very, very accessible. Uh, with Filipinos, a lot of times th- there wasn't necessarily a lot of gay Asian American clubs or gay Filipino clubs specifically. There was maybe one. But they found refuge in, in places that were mostly like black and brown queer men. Uh, if if they weren't going to places like um, these gay clubs, you know, it was often the case that it was because they were in college, right? And so in college, your social life is very much anchored to the school. And so in those spaces, they would find queer kinship through other gay folks that were part of, say, the Filipino-American student organization or, or um, a Latino student organization um, at schools that had big, like large numbers of students, like uh, the UC's University of California campuses. Um, it was very easy to find other gay brown folks to, to build friendships with. Um, for folks that went to private schools that were predominantly white, that was a little bit harder, but um, you know they still managed to find um, gay, gay, uh, queer kinship in other in other arenas, whether it be in person or through um, social networking sites or social media.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um- You also observe how racialized gay men have to identify their own stories within established uh, parameters of tragedy or triumph. And in a way, um, you you state that publishing also mandates the perpetuation of this binary, which does not fully encapsulate um, the humanity of racialized gay men. Uh, Could you talk about what it means to flout existing scripts of uh, tragedy and triumph and what the possibilities um, are of this
0: subversion? Uh, I, I really felt like this is, um, I love this question because I think it, it, it sort of shows how times have changed. So when I started writing this book, um, one of my motivations was because it was a time when gay gay people were starting to be accepted, same-sex marriage was, was becoming legalized on a federal level. And so I I encountered a lot of heterosexual people that that truly believe that just because uh, same sex marriage exists, all of a sudden, like, it's okay to be gay. As if all the, the the terrible things that happened before uh, same sex marriage was legalized, as if those things didn't happen, right? And so for me, like when I did these interviews, I felt like it was really important to acknowledge the the labor and the choreography and the creativity that these young men engaged engaged in in order to survive and, and even thrive. Um, that said, I think that. As as these these folks are telling their stories to me, particularly because the interview was predicated on like what it's like to grow up gay in an immigrant family, I think they, they often relied on this 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 um, narrative of like you know being gay is traumatizing, but then you triumph by like forming friends and being resilient. And I thought that while that is part of the story, it's not all of the story. And I realized that more and more um, toward the end of writing this book. Um, I think if I started this book today, the book would look very different. Um, I would want to talk more about, um, you know, amplify some of the joyful times or some of the mundane times. Because um, I think those those things matter a lot too. Um, for example, like if my entire existence is just about being Filipino or being a person of color and queer, like there's a lot of other aspects to who I am. I, I love dogs. Uh, you know, I love... Um, binging netflix i mean i don't know those are personality traits but like I, I'm, I'm irreverent i like to karaoke like there's so many things about me that have nothing to do with my identities um and i think that those are things worth talking about um i got to do a, a quick shout out to a book that's going to come out next year uh by a, a scholar named michael jeffries it's it's called black and queer on campus and he talks a lot about just the, the mundane uh quotidian experiences of black Queer college students and how there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of um, power in focusing in on the everyday experiences that are that aren't just about like revolution and social change because to be honest like the those kind of ordinary moments take up most of our time it's not like we're protesting like these young men were like protesting on the front lines like twenty four seven.
1: Right, yeah. Um, While well, I was wonder, um, reading your book, I was um, wondering what working on this book and, and listening to the community as you write about means for your journey as a writer and an educator.
0: Oh my gosh. For this book, I... Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. I went through every emotion possible. I think writing a book is really hard. Um, it's, it's, it's hard because I think it took me a long time to really find... The right tone for it Uh, i started this i started writing this book in maybe 2014 perhaps and i wrote a couple chapters and then in 2016 the pulse nightclub shooting happened in orlando and it was it was horrible a lot of the the young men that i interviewed had had come of age in places like pulse nightclub um, which was at the time like having a, a latin night party like mostly black and brown folks and I, it just it hit me so hard it, it there was this idea that like the one place you feel safe you can be completely yourself in the world and you get gunned down in a, in a horrific mass shooting it just something about that event really changed me as a writer um, when i looked at the chapters i had written I felt like what I had written didn't feel urgent enough. It didn't. It didn't do justice to the the emotions and the complexities of of, of queer sons of immigrants' lives. And so I, I essentially threw all of it in the trash and <laughs> started over. Um, I knew that. Um, you know, early on, I had published a, a little excerpt of a little a little bit of um, preliminary findings from the book, and I remember very vividly that um, I gave a talk at UCLA, and, and there was this Latino queer um, student who came up to me and said, "Hey, like, I read that article you wrote about what it's like to be gay in an immigrant family, and." I read it, I had just come out to my mom, and when I read it, I just I, I just started crying. And then I gave it to my mom and then she started crying and then we read it together and then we both started crying. And, that, and that's one of those stories that really reminds me how powerful um, storytelling can be. And for me, um, what's important to me too, is that anybody, regardless of your educational background, can pick this book up and, and read it and really get something out of it.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, We're almost nearing the end of of this um, episode. But before we let you go, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on?
0: Yeah, I am working on a new book about Asian-Americans and the criminal justice system. Uh, as you know, there's been a lot of attention on anti-Asian hate, and there's been a lot of attention on the criminal justice system and policing. But it's not often the case that we're talking about Asian Americans and and the and the criminal justice system in the same under in the same breath, right? Those two things seem like um, they don't get talked about a lot um, as 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 if they're like unrelated to each other. But it is the case that, you know, the criminal justice system or the US justice system really affects the lives of Asian Americans. Um, and I think this is a, a book that I, where I wanna show how this model minority stereotype that, that plagues Asian Americans, it, it does an injustice because it, it erases um, the experiences of Asian Americans who don't fit that model minority stereotype.
1: Right. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this book and for uh, speaking to us about it. Um, I'm I'm sure it will be read widely. Um, thank you so much again.
0: I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me to the show. This was wonderful.